On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers open to PhDs beyond the tenure track. Each episode, we'll interview a PhD who has put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities PhDs to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Winters, and today we're in the finishing room of the Harrington School of Communication and Media at the University of Rhode Island to talk to another URI alumni, Dr. Kenna Barrett, Director of Development at the Paul H. Neitz School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University via Skype. Thank you for speaking with us today, Kenna. Happy to be here. First, as the Director of Development, what would you say the main goals of your position are? And what skills have helped you in your years in this profession? Sure. So I work in university advancement, which is essentially providing private philanthropy revenue to the university so that it can complete its core mission. So my job, and I manage a team of of four people, my job is to motivate people to consider giving to our school, which we call SICE, the School for Advanced International Studies, to talk to them about the different ways that they can give to SICE and to reach out to institutional donors as well as individuals to increase uh, their thinking about philanthropy and hopefully increase their giving as well to the school. My responsibility is for the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. Can you tell us a little bit about the donors that you reach out to directly? One of the things I read in an interview that you did with Jennifer Polk is that you find working in individual development really fulfilling because many of the donors have gotten to where they are by treating people well. But I also think it would be interesting for our listeners to understand the different levels of donors that you're working with. Sure. Yeah. There's, we work with donors anywhere from what we call the annual fund level or annual giving level to major and principal giving. Those are kind of uh, shop terms. But annual donors are considered for uh, Johns Hopkins to be people that are making gifts or pledges under $100,000 over five years. I know that sounds like a lot of money anyway, and it is. Um, And those donors, even within that category, the annual donors range from anyone that's giving $100 up to a larger annual level gift. And then we have major donors who are giving $100,000 and up over five years. And that level is important because it is our cutoff for giving an endowed gift, which means that you have a gift that lives in our university endowment and can go on perpetually, as we say. So Mm. every year that uh, gift generates some income that gets spent for core purposes. So that's a nice way for many donors to kind of feel like their gift is having an impact year after year. And um, it's it's a nice way for SICE to have predictable revenue streams. So even the URI, the predictable revenue, they get that from tuition and they get that from state grants and so forth. But they also get it from an endowment. 
and that consists of prep philanthropy. So that's why that endowment actually on the back end, it's something as a graduate student, we don't always think about, but that endowment is providing revenue Mm -hmm. for often for core needs. So then after that, you have sort of really high level uh, donors, people that can give a million dollars and above. And as I said in my article, the cool thing about what I learned in my role when I started working with uh, what we call major gifts level donors and principal donors is that many of them are at the top of their careers. They've done really well. They've had good fortune and they've been really good at what, what they do, whether that's you know being in the law, being in finance, uh, running a business or being an entrepreneur. And um, oftentimes we hear about the bad actors in the news, the people that rose to the top by uh being self-centered or being a vulture investor or, you know, the people that we kind of hear in the media, I won't mention names, mm-hmm. or being narcissistic, let's say. But what I learned in, and I did not come from a high-income community or background, I learned that many people, you know, got that way because they had what we call emotional intelligence and they were able to to create goodwill and good vibes and good energy among the people they worked with. And that's what helped them succeed. And so many of them were also equally kind uh, to me. Many of them cared about social change. They wanted to change the institutions, not just um, put a bandaid on things. And that was new for me to learn. Okay. So today is a, it's a Tuesday morning. It's just after nine. You're working from home today. Can you tell me a little bit about your schedule, if it's flexible? Because another thing I've heard from people interested in maybe going outside of academia or at least the tenure track job market is they're worried about giving up flexibility of schedule that, you know, professors might accept a lower pay rate than somebody similarly educated for the flexibility of their schedule. Do you feel that you have, you know, a nine to five where you're in the office every day of the week? Or do you feel that you still have a little bit of give and take here and there with how you make your day? So I think it really depends. Universities, administratively speaking, not necessarily in terms of professoriate, but the university can be slow to change, right? It's like the big ship trying to change around and adapt to, to new environments. So the flex time thing was not something universities readily adopted, again, but outside of professors and grad students and so forth. And so I've been in roles where, yes, it was nine to five. I've been in roles where I could set up my own modified schedule, but it was because I had been a good performer or I had had proved myself first. In my current role, I am, you know, many of us are able to do a limited amount of flex time because we all commute in from other places into Washington, D.C., and that's a place where it's recognized that there's a, a, a commute issue. So, we, you know, sort of a modified or limited ability to to flex our schedule. It's, it is true that it is not what you might find as a professor where, you know, you can stack your courses on a Thursday or Friday or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever it may be. And then you can kind of do what you want for those other days. It's, it's not that. And that can be a good thing in the sense that it, it really is good to be able to go with a, your colleagues and to come in at a certain time. It's like if you're on a, a team or something like that and you have to show up at practice and you do your practice and there's something about that social culture that helps you get things done and stay motivated. So I think many big companies are even finding that if 
if you have everybody on a random flex schedule, it's just not as productive and not even as enjoyable for the team members. They think it's important to keep in mind, yes, you're, you're not going to have a radically flexible schedule, most likely, although all, all institutions are different. But that may be a good thing because it kind of keeps you um, keeps you motivated, keeps you moving, and keeps you in contact with your colleagues. Okay. So to step back for a moment from what you're currently doing, you received your PhD from URI in rhetoric and composition in 2015. But before that, you got an AB in cognitive science at Wellesley and then a master's in philosophy. Could you describe a little bit how your intellectual development led you to what at least seems to me to be very different fields? Sure. So cognitive science was an easy choice at Wellesley because it was four, four fields combined in one. I got to take philosophy, computer science, linguistics, and psychology classes and kind of toward a major. So it was a, a way of not choosing a specific major. <laughs> but I had a wonderful philosophy professor when I was in my cognitive science department named Owen Flanagan who really interested me in that kind of field. And I thought it was a neat way to be able to combine writing, which I always love to do, and thinking and think about really interesting things like, are we really just brains in a vat or are we just dreaming? That was a lot of fun. And that was what interested me in philosophy. But part of it was just the creativity of some of those philosophers, really. They were thinking about interesting problems and the ability to write about them and to uh, write books that also would be read by outside audiences, which is something I was always curious about. So that's what got me interested in philosophy, which I then pursued uh, at UCSD. But it was the philosophy combined with the, if you read people like Dan Dennett, who was a, a philosopher that wrote some, some books a number of years ago, and I think is still publishing today, but he wrote Consciousness Explained and tried to tackle what it was to be conscious. So that, that, that sort of creative spark was what really interested me, and I think has kind of stayed through um, me in terms of my, my interest level uh, throughout the other things I've done. Great. In full disclosure, we, Ken and I have spoken once before this, and you said some interesting things about how you view gifts to universities as kind of a redistribution of wealth. Could you just talk a moment about how you view your position in the university as it relates both to the university, but also to the students and how you can help both groups? Sure. Yeah, sure. And it's really interesting uh, piece that I know sometimes the administration of that university is like the evil empire mm. and the faculty is the resistance. But um, in a way, uh, we are part of a, a wealth distribution, a voluntary wealth distribution scheme. Not in a way, and that's what we are part of. So, right, and, and you often see in societies that have a very high uh, tax rate, you tend to see uh, less philanthropy. And then in societies like this where there's a lot of wealth creation, sort of like the U.S., a lot of wealth creation, and the taxation scheme still leaves people with a lot of a lot of money left over. Many of them really do want to give back. This is not something where, you know, they 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 have grumblingly. This is a self-selected group of people, uh, volunteers and donors that that want to make a difference. And so, uh, they are giving, and those funds go directly to again core support. Many of the much of the funding goes to fellowships and scholarships so that students have to graduate with less debt. So mm -hmm. 
you know, I think that it is um, it is part of wealth distribution. Now, really, should uh, we be all petitioning society <laughs> to make a, a change and, and to fix or reform the tax structure or something so that the students don't have to graduate with that or so the government provides some grants? Yes, probably so. I think there's there's all kinds of things that can be done uh, system systemically to uh, give people more opportunity. But you also have to look at what, you know, we're not all going to be activists that, in that way um, or as professional activists or professional system reformers. And so while those are beliefs I share, I think up in beliefs that many many donors would share too. Um, you've heard Warren Buffett say, <laughs> I should be taxed more than my secretary. Yeah. You know, it's, just, it's, um, it, it's something many people feel in the meantime you look at, I looked at my skill sets and the things I enjoy doing, and I felt like uh, university advancement and fundraising was something I could do at least uh, to be on the, the, the solution side of the equation. I think that's really interesting because I think so infrequently do we consider university advancement as a, a passion or values-based position, and I think it's great to hear you describe it as that. Mm, yeah, I wonder what your hearing it described as. <laughs> Honestly, I hear it described very infrequently, but it yeah. seem it, it has always seemed like one of those jobs that's more akin to talking to you has changed my vision of it, but it has always seemed more akin to telemarketer. Mm. Probably many of us have gotten calls from the person here, the student that works at our alma mater. We've got a, a phone bank kind of a call or someone from the Fireman's Benevolent Society. So it seems like fundraising is done at that level. And that is part of it. Uh, but on the higher end, it can give an opportunity for someone to do something transformative. For instance, at Hopkins, there's a donor that gave a $75 million gift to the philosophy department at Hopkins. And that person had said, I don't know him personally, but they had said, that the philosophy department kind of changed their life and way of thinking and was really critical in the way they approached their career even. So that's transformative for that, the philosophy department. Yeah. And so it's working on those kind of things. Again, right, we also, I think this isn't something that you've said, but I do think it's probably true that we think of, uh, um, you know, donors as kind of the the wealthy and concerned with wealth preservation and conservation and they tend to be fiscally conserved. And while those things may be true, um, these, there are people that remember their humanities education that like this gentleman majored in philosophy, majored in English, really believe in the humanities as instilling fundamental values and, and really care. So I think that's a really exciting, exciting thing about philanthropy. I think part of the disconnect, at least for me, is that, so first I'm not at the level at all to potentially give a major gift and probably will never be. But also that whenever I've heard stories about major gifts, the gift officer is normally left out of this story. Like my undergrad institution, we had a similar situation where there was a wealthy businessman who really had wished he had been in music and had always appreciated music and gotten into it later in life. And so he gave a huge gift for a new music building at my undergraduate institution. But the gift officer was left out of this story. It just sounded like he just came and showed up at the president's office and said, like, take my money. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's a great point. It is. And before I got into this field, I also would have thought the same thing. Uh, it, you know, it, it takes a lot of work for that kind of thing to happen. Um, while some donors do sort of self-solicit or to come say, I'd really like to do this. Uh, many, it's a process of, of many years of working with them. And I could describe a number of examples where it really is a gift officer or a development director or an associate dean for advancement uh, that really starts that. Of course, who else is involved always for these larger gifts, the, hot, the president of the institution or the, the dean of the school will be very much involved. But it's quite likely that that development officer had a lot to do with it and built up a, a relationship of trust with the donor as well. So often there's multiple people involved in, on both sides for sure. But yeah, it's, it's like you never would have thought there's this whole cottage industry of people like me that, that do this, but, uh, but we do. Could you give me an example of a time where you are working with a donor, um, whether it's over an extended period of time or a shorter period of time, and, and really help them understand not just to, to develop the relationship and ultimately find the way that their gift would work best for them and the university? I can give you a couple examples. Let me try to think of, of one. I mean, there's just – it's it's what we do kind of all the time to try and connect people and make them feel connected. I'm working on a few now, uh, and I won't share them in detail since they haven't closed yet. <laughs> I don't want to change Of course, anything. of course. But yes, I've worked with, with people in the past who um, want to do something. You find out what they're interested in, if they're interested in uh, students, if they're interested in many, many donors actually are interested in the cost of higher education. They're very concerned about that. They want to make sure that students who have to take out loans get to are able to repay them. So I work with someone that made seven-figure gifts to a loan repayment program at one point. And, you know, you end up shaping it. So they said, well, higher education is very expensive. And then you go through and kind of tell the institution side of the story. So here's how much we tuition costs. Here's the percentage of funding we're get, getting back on tuition. So... To pick, you know, tuition is $40,000, just pick a number. We give 30 or 40% back when you average out all the aid awards we make. So you kind of go and explain how it looks from the institution's perspective. And in one case, you know, I had, we had a, a program that forgave loans, right, that would pay back loans on behalf of students that were in public interest kind of careers. And so I worked with this individual to make uh, large gifts toward that program so that students could have their loans forgiven. So it's it's part of what we do all the time. It's really for people thinking like, what is fundraising? Would I like it? You're you're getting to meet people, find out what they've been doing, what they care about, and then showing them ways that they can realize those interests or those concerns by supporting your institution. So in a way, it has to be a win-win. It's not like they're getting a product. <laughs> Rather than not getting a new TV or a new car where they can just drive away. Have that. The, the product is the gift and the relationship and the, the, people, the beneficiaries. So it, uh, it's it's a very positive field. It's I would say that I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish. We always, there's always difficult <laughs> individuals of course in any field i'm sure we, we know that from being grad students but 
you know, it's it's something where you you're more often than not working in a, a win-win kind of a, a ball game. You know, it's it's not adversarial. It's not set up to be. You maybe ask lots of questions, but it's it's not. It's just a more kind of a, a cooperative environment in many ways in terms of the relationships we build with the donors. Does that help? Yeah, no, it's and it's. It's always interesting. I mean, there are some some connected careers outside of academia or not in the tenure track at the very least that we inherently understand. I might not know the day-to-day of what somebody working at a humanities council does, but you understand like the general idea of a humanities council. But even though gift officer and, and development is in the university, I think we we at the university don't spend a lot of time really thinking about what these people do and how it does affect us, even though we could just go over to their office and chat with them. Yeah, totally. And I had the same experience when I was at a student, even at, at all three of my institutions. I don't think I knew the development folks. And that, to some degree, that's that's on us. Um, you know, at SICE, we work with the the students a lot, actually. It's like, it's different for lots of different places, I think, uh, you know, it's, it, I don't know why, uh, you know, at URI, for instance, um, <laughs> we haven't had that connection, although I, I know some folks in the development office there now, so <laughs> I can tell I can send them your way. But, you know, most people get into this with uh, grant writing. I think a lot of science PhDs do find their way through the grant, the corporate and foundation relations side of things. Regarding how you got into this, so you went to Wellesley, you got your AB, and then you went on and you studied philosophy at UC San Diego, and you ended up getting a master's degree. But you've also described leaving the program as quitting. Oh. <laughs> Can you elaborate a little bit on why you chose to leave graduate school at that time? Sure. I probably used that term flippantly because my advisor tried to assure me that people who left graduate school weren't quitters. They were going on to better things. <laughs> I think... Uh, you know, when I look back on it, I, it is you, what you said. <laughs> I did sort of quit, but um, but I think at that point it was a good decision uh, for me to make. I was in a really wonderful department, but I really was kind of aching to do something that felt a little more real in a way. So I was reading sort of German idealists or something at that time, not really, just not feeling that connection. And so it was good to be able to take some time off from the program. And I actually I had worked in uh, a, a women's shelter. I did some volunteering uh, in the U.S.-Mexico border on immigration rights and trying to document um, what was happening to people that had been deported, which obviously is um, even more of a major, major topic. And um, there are obviously major human rights issues there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just felt like I was able to make some interpersonal kinds of connections and do something uh, that felt useful. And I needed that at that point in my life. So if I look back on it, would you know, I have told myself, oh, just finish up, stick with it for another few years, and then you could do have that opportunity to work with people, maybe. But, you know, you are where you are at that moment. So it was rewarding for me to kind of leave that program at that time. Whether I would have done it, you know, or not having now having known what I know and having always kind of wanted to finish up my doctorate and having finally done it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
you know, it's, it was, I was, I was glad to make the choice that I did. Um, and I think this time around kind of going to finish my doctorate and then coming back into the field I had been in also was the right decision for me at that time. Mm -hmm. When you were volunteering for, I believe, the American Friends Service Committee, correct? I, yeah, yes, I was volunteering for that, yes. But then you transitioned into development in similar positions, and you've worked in those for about 15 years now, including several positions at Yale before you returned for your PhD at URI. Could you tell us a little bit about what initially moved you from these smaller groups to working in university development? There were a few factors. A university development is generally fairly structured, and I liked the structure of it. Something I hinted at a little earlier when I said it's it's not always bad to come in and work a nine-to-five job. I like the structure, but I also like the intellectual content. So if you're in university development, the cool thing is that you can expose to so much different stuff you wouldn't have, right? So right now, we're all specialists. As a grad student, you are a specialist. Mm-hmm. You know a lot. You're kind of drowning in, oh, no, no another article came out about this thing. I'm going to read it, so I'm on, uh, like, uh, have the latest info. You need to be an expert. And then uh, the cool thing was you'd have, like, a science project. If it's something you didn't know anything, you just... So they had thought about before that it they had worked with the divinity school. So you have a, a project there about something I hadn't thought. There's so many neat ideas and to be able to be part of it. I know, yeah, I do like institutional advancement. I think it's a, a cool career. It's something if people are thinking about trying it, you might as well. I'm happy to talk with people or, you know, give feedback or advice. Um, it's something to to try out. I know a lot of people that have doctorates that have landed in, in this field in one way or another, and many are, you know, continue, have been in the field for a number of years and continue in it. So, so yeah. So the way you just described this to me, it sounds like working in university development allows you the chance to become involved in a lot of different sorts of projects, or at least, you know, have a small part in a number of different things. And then also, that you're not always directing your skills at the exact same thing day after day, which is not what I would have initially thought. I would have thought working at a larger institution, you would be directed in your job. You'd, you'd do this one thing and you'd do it very well. Does that sound right, what I've just taken yeah. from what you told me? Yeah, and I think it, it, it really depends on so many factors. It's hard to characterize this whole field in a couple of words or to say, yes, it's very narrow or no, it's very broad. Um, mm-hmm. From course. my experience, I was a development officer at Yale in foundation relations, so I got a bunch of different projects from different walks of life. Uh, then I spent time at the law school. I was in, again, corporate and foundation relations, which, again, you get broad kinds of different projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time's limited to one field or one school, but it's a lot of different kinds of projects. Uh, at one point, I spent more time at, at the law school in the major gifts field, which can feel like it's the same thing because you're calling people, you're emailing them, you're setting up meetings, you're having conversations about the school. Uh, and so as, as neat as that can be, sometimes people do feel like it, it gets a little repetitive. But if you're in a big department, you can add on different things to, to do, for instance, you know, you may work on getting a new affinity group started, right? A, a women's philanthropy or um, some other kind of group that may be underrepresented in philanthropy, and, and that can be exciting. 
So it's important to like look for ways, and supervisors need to do that too, to look for ways to keep staff um, engaged. But it, it's not always as hierarchical as it seems. Now, the other thing that people would need to know is that we do have goals in every institution. There's a goal in some way. Sometimes they will say, you so-and-so should try to bring in X amount. Other times it's just a department goal. Sometimes it's a university goal of revenue, right? And that's pretty unavoidable because, again, the way university revenue streams work, you've got tuition, you've got, sometimes again with state schools, you've got government funding, you've got uh, grant revenue, you've got endowment payout, and then you've got that sort of philanthropy variable. So the accountants have to, on the accountant business office has to put that together. Because the institution is a company, and right, it's a nonprofit organization, but it is a company, and it, it has to be solvent. So you will have to be there. You will have to think about the numbers in some way or another. So since you brought up the idea of the the university as a company, and I think that that's a that is not how most faculty would describe it, and usually not graduate students. A little less sure about undergraduate students at this point. But this seems like a good way. You've been on a couple of different sides of the university at this point. You've been a student. You've taught. You're, you're now teaching. And you're also in the administration. How do you think of these different arms of the university and how are they working together? Sure. So the first thing I'll say, if 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 one is not thinking about the university as a company, one's got to revise one's mindset. And that's... that's not to say that it is a greedy company or just say anything pejorative, but I think many writers, many English studies writers even have thought about this and said, yes, this is part of the, it is a company and we, the professoriate are drawing a salary from that and we have to look at our own complicity. So I think we all have to understand this is a company that's not a bad thing, that's just the legal structure that, that's describing what it is as a corporate entity and it has nonprofit status, so that means that profits cannot flow to the directors of the company. That's you know, is all that that really means. Uh, so you're not getting the president taking a five million dollar bonus if things go well, which is a good thing. But they have you have to make ends meet. Can't be like, oh, sorry, we've been you know we've been running uh, in the red for five years, and that's fine. You know, they just you won't you need money, right? And so, of course, when you look at uh, the adjunct issue, which is something I, you know, obviously as an I adjuncted for five years, actually, excuse me, uh, while I was doing my doctorate. And the the treatment there, the ways in which um, the labor kind of force is changing in universities, we're all we're all part of that, and we have to understand that it's a business in that way. That doesn't mean that it mean a businesses can't be better or worse and more just or less just. And we have to focus, we have to accept it's a business and then push those universities to be uh, just in the way they make these financial decisions. And are they always? No. Do they feel pressure for, for on their budget line? Yes. Uh, in higher education is changing in, um, many graduate programs, you're seeing decreased enrollment. And so that's something that, you know, it's also counter-cyclical, right? So when the economy is doing well, many people put off school, they they work in the workforce, and then when the economy is not doing well, often you'll see an uptick in graduate programs. So it's just, it's something, it's, it behoove everyone to understand and then 
worked in that paradigm and again just push universities to be as just as as they can because every single faculty member is drawing a salary even if you are a socialist you know Mm -hmm. you're still drawing a salary so you just want to make sure you understand that (laughs) of course you chose not to continue to be on the academic job market once you'd finished your PhD. And a number of online pieces, you're very upfront about the fact that you that this was an active choice that you made. It's not that you were fatigued, but you sat down, you ran the numbers, and you decided that it was going to make the most sense for you and your family to go back to university development. Could you tell us a little bit more about this decision-making process? Sure. And it was right for me. Remember, I was a student that had gone back after some time in the workforce. So I was in my, I guess, 30s, late 30s when I went back. So it's a different place to be than when I was 22 and heading off to grad school for the first time. And I was like, wow, I'm getting $9,000 to go to grad school for <laughs> This is great. You know, it's everybody's different. So if that's, a, if, if you know, you're listening to this and you're finding yourself more in that position, sort of go on the market. If you feel like you don't need to sort of think about the financial as the first consideration, but that wasn't where I was. So yeah, I did crunch the numbers and I have a, a wonderful uh, faculty member who was not on my committee, but was a, was very, very helpful and supportive. His name is Les Perlman. Uh, he's a retired uh, from MIT although he's still active in the composition community and who was supportive and who said that he understood my decision and that it was really unfortunate that, you know, the field of composition would lose people like me that had contributed, that could stand to contribute even more to the field, but just with the financial considerations, it didn't work out. So um, did that, does that answer your question or is there more no, that does. I just, I have a follow-up question. Do you feel like you've left the field of composition entirely or just that you now relate to it in a different way than you did it when you were in grad school and how you might have had you gone into academia? So let's, again, let's look at this from a labor market perspective. This, this is, it's a shrinking market right now. I'm not that's not a normative characterization. That's just a descriptive characterization. I'd like it not to be. I'd love there to be tons of jobs in all of academia, including the humanities. I think it's a really great field, an important field, but there's not. So, um, you know, I did I leave the field or did the field leave me or was it too narrow? I mean, I was, I did apply to some jobs. I did a limited search. I had some interviews. I didn't get anything in that search, although again, it was limited and I knew I'd probably have to you would have to do a lot more in order to get something. So I don't know what you call that besides a narrowing job market or maybe also with my background, I wasn't a traditional comp student. So I had obviously the philosophy masters. I had time to work for. So it was a very different person than the profile often, right? You know, this everyone probably listening knows that you're looking for a writing program, program administrator. So some of that had worked in a writing center, some of that had taught as an undergrad, even done peer tutoring, that kind of thing. I also didn't have that exact skill set. I was like a unique bird, and so I would have needed a unique position. But I still feel connected to the field. I still feel connected to writing and writing instruction. I'm interested in publishing some of my stuff. I think, you know, the piece about automation and the labor market is connected again to stuff that we're talking about today. So I will be (laughs) working on getting more of my stuff out there, you know, as I can. And that's something that probably will prompt a follow-up question about, you know, when you're in a a job like this or sort of an alternate kind of job track, how do you, how do you publish? Which is a really good question. (laughs) 
Well, yes, you are right. There is a follow-up question. I had already had this one planned, though. When you were talking about making this decision, you originally stated that you were you felt like you might lose out on some cultural capital. But I also want to just talk about the trade-off. You know, you're no longer in the publish or perish paradigm. You might still want to publish, but it's not uh, – no one's going to take away your tenure if you don't. And, you know, John Hopkins is a great school with wonderful name recognition. Uh, you you have a great job title there in addition to it being a great school. So how how do you feel the trade-off has worked for you of – saying, no, I'm not going to be a professor and taking on this role that is, you know, from the outside, at least very impressive. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, it's, it's funny the way cultural capital works. So, yeah, it's, it's true. I'm not uh, sending out lots of uh, publications for academic journals. And so in that way, you could think of it as losing out. I'm not teaching lots of students actively. I teach a little bit, as you know, but not a full course, but not being able to kind of sing my views on, on the world that way. But I feel like it. the flip side is that just part of a lot of interesting conversations about higher education more generally, as I mentioned, you know, with graduate schools and, you know, all these institutions are looking to kind of what's their next step. So I've been involved in those conversations, um, being involved in conversations with people, again, that just have a really interesting outlook after many years as, you know, having been successful in their business, kind of working on a program in women's leadership at SICE, and so have been able to take part in helping to, to form, you know, the underpinnings of that project and helping to start getting it, get it funded, hearing students that have been a part of this, presenting on some practical education and consulting work they did around the world. So it's it's pretty exciting. Uh, but it is true that if you, you know, are an academic and you're used to kind of having your own stuff and publishing that, you will have to look for for outlets. It's still very possible. I know that the RETCOMP community, I'm sure I could, you know, take part in it and send things out for publication and I just have a lot to juggle as I, I do have a family, and so that comes first. But I have been able to publish on uh, this kind of stuff. I just put out a new article um, on a blog called Beyond the Professoriate, which was okay. a place I published before. So um, it's more it's easier to have time to publish shorter, like thousand-word things than longer academic publications. But there's you can always go kind of in and out of that as you have the time. The idea of that you're writing for the public, I think, is no, it's not the exact same as an academic article, obviously, but maybe in some ways it's more powerful than just publishing in field-specific journals. Yeah, I think you raise a really fascinating question. I don't know when and where the idea of being a public intellectual became something not, but, oh, they're just a popularizer. And they, yeah. you know, they water down these ideas. And I think I've made a shift in my life over a number, like we're talking 20 years, where, you know, I thought everyone should just be published technical things and kind of, uh, you know, talk to one another and was trying to grapple with. But I wanted to do something that was, and I 
the way I write in our faculty of art, you are, I said, people can understand what you write, and that may be a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. You know, it, I, I, I have to explain things to myself to make sure I understand. So my writing is usually pretty accessible, even in, in uh, writing for, you know, somebody in English studies and writing on Derrida or something. I have to write it out so I understand it. So that's just what, you know, public-facing writing, I think, is writing that's, that its aim is to be understood. Mm-hmm. And you want to explain concepts and have people get them. What's yeah. what's wrong with that? I think it's it's sort of I how elite can you be that you don't think that's a good idea? Why are we simply rewarding people for writing technical articles? So if I look at I've got a limited amount of time, do I want to write a thousand word blog on something I think would help people or give them some ideas, or do I want to like spend that same amount of time? revising an essay and putting in a bibliography and making sure everything is perfectly right to send it out to an academic publication that fewer people are going to see. So, you know, the, the cost benefit is, is more obvious for me at this stage in life. (laughs) Do you have any last advice, parting words for our listeners who may be students in graduate school for the humanities, whether they're getting towards the end of their degree or just at the start? You Want to uh, want to consider all your options if you're if you're thinking about it or wondering about an academic career, and just understand there is no perfect job. Uh, academia often characterizes itself as this wonderful utopia where you get to teach these great students and and do your own research, and that's all true, but it's not always easy, and it's it's not the only way that you have to make an impact. That's again that that culture of academia is like academia is the best or anything to do mm-hmm. with your with your PhD. Not always. So keep your mind open and just understand though that because you did use those unspoken soft skills, that's something you can lay up if you're thinking, well gee, maybe I'd like to try something like university advancement, but by dissertation was not on that topic, what relevance do I have? Yes, you may you may have to start in a more junior position than you might, but you'd be starting as an assistant professor anyway, so <laughs> there, there probably wouldn't be much of a difference compensation was there. Uh, but you can talk about the specific things that you did if you understand that this is, this is a role that requires grit and requires social interaction. Think about a time that you had to bring an advisor along or your feedback and respond to it because those skills that you use putting wrangling let's say your committee together are mm. the kinds of skills that you will use the kinds of social skills you'll use in your in your new role and since I went back to graduate school after having been in fundraising I effectively thought about that way I thought about cultivating my advisors in the same way we talk about cultivating our our university uh, family and community in the development world. So just just think about that as something you can talk about if you're looking at a career like this. Great. Thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. Happy to hear from anyone that has any questions. Thanks. You've been listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. Join us for our next episode when we'll interview Dr. Paul Erickson, Program Director for the Humanities, Arts, Education, and American Institutions at American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu 
slash nextgenphd or find us on iTunes. Look for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast was founded by Rachel Basio and Michelle Meek, and this episode has been produced by Ryan Engley and Catherine Winters with help from Michael Landreth in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction by Ryan Engley and Catherine Winters. Catherine Winters is our editor, and Mark Setta is our sound designer.